Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. What a mess. Border security, foreign military aid, and the lack of a full-year 2024 budget agreement have turned into a sort of Gordian knot for Congress, which is not around at the moment. Happy New Year indeed. For what could happen this week, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And is there a way out of this? I mean, you just hear all these conflicting reports, but even members themselves say we're not going to be able to get a budget done. That's right. I mean, they're gone this week and the week after that for the holiday season. Speaker Mike Johnson had made clear he wanted to send his membership home and did on the 14th. We saw the Senate in for a few days last week, but didn't really make progress on the big issues, both fiscal 2024 spending and then this border security and international aid package that really was the reason they had stuck around was to try to make progress on that. So we go into the new year without much clarity on what's going to happen on those issues, plus everything else that Congress needs to get done just in the routine order of business and other short-term deadlines that set for themselves. So you're right, it's going to be a messy start to 2024 up on Capitol Hill. Could this be one of those situations where there's a sudden breakthrough in the impasse with respect to the border and what the border policy shall be? Because, you know, Chuck Schumer says, yeah, we're all for a better border, but within our values, whatever that means. And the Republicans say, we've got to shut this thing down so that there's not this influx. And maybe there is a middle ground that, I mean, sometimes these things break just when they seem like they never will. I think that's true. I think there's two things. One is a list of principles that everybody could agree to, Republicans and Democrats and independents on the Hill working with the administration. And then what does the actual legislation look like? Because that was one of the sticking points last week was given the timing of where they were talking and what they were talking about, there was concern about seeing the actual text, what the legislation does, because they want to get it right. I think Chris Murphy had said they haven't really touched border legislation in 40 years because it is so tough to do. So I think that's one of the things that could make it difficult. If they got to agreement that a broad swath of the House and the Senate could both agree to, you can see a path forward. But getting to that point is going to be hard on this border and aid package, let alone the other spending talks that are also going on with seemingly not much progress. Because sometimes they seem to be talking at cross purposes. You know, the Republicans that are pushing for the border security security, they see that as a national security issue. And therefore, the question is, well, if we're concerned with the national security of countries abroad, what about our own national security? And Democrats see it in a different colored light, you might say, as a border and immigration issue, but not a national security issue. I'm just guessing. But when they talk at cross purposes like that, that's what makes things difficult. And the linkage is also here because when President Biden requested money for Ukraine and Israel, there was also a request for money for the border to help with the different agencies that are dealing with the influx there. And in some ways that opened up for a discussion about with money comes consequences or responsibilities or oversight or even changes to policy that's for the people who reach our border or are trying to reach our border. So there was that natural linkage that started up, but the consensus is what's been hard here. Republicans in the House passed a bill this year, H.R. 2, that they've continued to try to push as their starting position. Um, Democrats in the Senate don't want to go to that extent. But as we saw with President Biden and the Homeland Security Secretary offering some Title 42-esque provisions, that's what they had used during the pandemic to keep people from crossing, you know, some sort of version of that 
could be in the mix still. So, you know, you've seen some movement, you've seen some sitting around a table before the holidays and everyone says they'll get back to it as soon as they can. So we'll see if they can, you know, come to a consensus there, but it, it is going to be difficult. And just as an aside, here's what Virginia Senator Mark Warner said to WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent, Mitchell Miller. Of course, I'm worried. If we get this through, it will clearly have to be broadly bipartisan. We've got to get it done. We're basically going to be dramatically changing not only border policy, but in many ways, immigration laws. And on the tie-in with foreign military aid. We can't say that Ukraine's a crisis, Israel's a crisis, the border's a crisis, and then not do our job. Virginia Senator Mark Warner speaking to WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And then there is the national budget for the government. And literally the day the House gets back is only a couple weeks until the shutdown deadline. And again, they're talking at cross purposes because, you know, one side doesn't want to do any more CRs and the other side doesn't like what the alternative to that is. And so the third way is a cessation of appropriations. That's right. And we have two deadlines coming up, January 19th, February 2nd. January 19th, to your point, is only two weeks after they get back from the holidays. And there's not agreement yet on what to do overall on spending, which makes it very hard to figure out what to do for each of the bills that are covered by those two deadlines. One of the things that seemed to be a challenge right before the holidays was they didn't even agree exactly what they had agreed on when they signed this debt limit deal. They know what the law says. They know what the spending caps in that measure were, but there's this notion of a side deal that President Biden and then Speaker McCarthy worked out for spending above that cap that you would offset with rescissions and other accounting mechanisms. And that's really a sticking point now is figuring out what did they exactly agree to and how could they move forward with that? It's really hard to write a bill unless you know what your target is. And until they resolve that and they headed into the holidays seemingly without a resolution, it's going to be difficult. So we could be facing a shutdown for some things on January 19th, others on February February 2nd. So it could be, again, a very weird late January with kind of this partial and then maybe complete shutdown if they can't figure out something to do. Your point about no more short-term CRs feels like a real one. Um, The last two were hard to get over the line and cost one speaker his job. So uh, there's a lot at play there. And meanwhile, when you get into February, well, the next thing you know, the cherry blossoms are not far behind. And then there's April deadlines for several matters that they've got to deal with. Right. Two big ones coming up. One is March 8th. That's the FAA's authorization. So that agency receives funding, but its authorization is important because the ticket taxes it collects and are used to fund operations, those would all lapse on March 8th without some sort of action. And then on April 19th, that's the new deadline for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, these important overseas uh, surveillance powers that people want to curtail as part of any long-term extension. So those are two deadlines that are not too long after the really big ones in January and February. All of those things have deadlines, and there will be some sort of vehicle to attempt to resolve that, and lawmakers are also going to look to use those to advance other things. One big thing is an unresolved tax package, revive some important business tax breaks like R&D. There's interest in getting that done as soon as possible. If they can stick it into one of these packages and get that over the line, they'll be looking to do that as well. Is there any controversy over FAA authorization? The House passed a bill on a really bipartisan basis, but in the Senate, there's been a holdup over pilot training requirements and some other language in that. So if the Senate can come to an agreement on what it wants to do with its bill, then maybe the House and the Senate can come together. They just haven't been able to get that done yet. But that's one that may have an easier path if they can work through some issues. 
And on the nominations front, those military holdups from Senator Tuberville, that's completely over now at this point. That's right. They made a last minute deal last week to get the last 11 generals and admirals over the line. And then they also made an arrangement to deal with other nominations because there's a rule. If you don't do something by the end of the year, you often send it back to the White House. They kept some of them in stasis. So they're still there in front of the Senate and they'll be there when they come back. But then there were some nominations that they sent back to the White House. The biggest one was Labor Secretary nominee Julie Sue, whose nomination has been languishing in the Senate all year. The White House said they are intending to renominate her. um, And that could be another bruising fight over her nomination next year because it's also Democrats don't necessarily agree on moving her forward. At least one, Joe Manchin, has stood in the way there. So another big swath of work to do next year is to continue chipping away at those. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in- would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.